Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Colborn here with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Music from that great band Enigma. And that's a track called Skydancer from their very first CD, or excuse me, from their last CD called Cobalt. What's in your cup this morning? I assume that a lot of you are listening live. Could be some folks listening um, on the archive, which would be I'm speaking to you later. It may not be morning where you're at or when you're listening, but mm, I'm enjoying that coffee. That's what's in my cup this morning. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a great week. We had uh, um, some much-needed rain that moved into the area yesterday. Keep an eye in southeast Nebraska on the weather tonight. Uh, allegedly, we're supposed to get some severe weather that comes in. And uh, I'm praying for some gentle rain and absolutely no hail. We don't need wind and hail. No, thank you? Uh-uh. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, this is one of those mornings where I could do a, a little promo for our program, Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, Needing Another Producer. Perhaps you sat out there in the listening audience and thought, hmm, I wonder if I could put up with Scott. <laughs> the producer's job is to... Uh, help drink a strong black coffee, and to call and interact with our guests. Today I am producer Les. Both Jim and Colleen are on assignment, and they'll be back next week. So the crew of me, myself, and I is here. And we're going to have a main guest in the studio. Uh, Richard Soul is going to be coming down to the station. Our main guest segment, Nebraskan Bigfoot Research. We'll be talking about local Bigfoot sightings around Lincoln and Nebraska, in addition to uh, Mr. Rich Soule's National International Research. An interesting conversation coming up. There is no pet talk today. When it rains, it indeed pours. Charlene is at the Tales and Trails Pet Walk and I'll be back next week. And looking at the Capital Humane Society, we've got the event Tales and Trails Pet Walk and Festival. It's taking place starting at 11 o'clock at the Fallbrook Town Center, 570 Fallbrook Boulevard. More information you can see at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Should be lo uh, lots of fun. There is actually a peanut butter looking contest, human versus dog. They offer a low-cost feline neuter spay program. And uh, their main pet viewing is going to be taking place at the Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Let's talk about a few of those pets for adoption. We'll start with 
cats for adoption and uh, some beautiful geez you know who who not to pick really these beautiful cats Kyla is a smoky gray cat just beautiful gorgeous Kendra and Kiera flank her in the pictures. Both have interesting multicolored coats, uh, luminescent eyes. Kendra, Kyla, and Kiera. Take a look at those cats. Their pictures and more information is up at capitalhumanesociety.org. And available dogs. We've got baby girl, Sarah, Echo, 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 Harley, <clears throat> Jack, be nimble, Jasper, and Tinny. I don't think we've ever had a dog named Tinny, T-I-N-N-Y before, Tinny. Could it be Tiny? There's two N's. So maybe it's a, a different way of spelling Tiny or uh, indeed Tinny. Some great dogs, if you need a dog or two in your household. Mac the good dog is at home listening to me right now. <laughs> Hi, Mac. Good dog. More information on the great dogs for adoption at capitalhumanesociety.org. They're open today and tomorrow. And there's actually a donations page also where you can see stuff to give them when you stop out and take a look at the dogs and cats for adoption. I'm Scott Colborn. This is Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We'll take a musical break and come back with our opening segment guest, the parapsychologist and author Lloyd Arbach, in our segment called Invisible Signal. Stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more program. Well, she's the kind of woman any man would desire With 
devil in a smile and her eyes flashing fire. Red talon nails and porcelain skin. She radiates an aura of the most delicious sins. And you tell yourself to love how it be seven kinds of hell. But you're helpless to resist her like she's cast some kind of spell. And you're an educated man. You're all too wise to the stakes. Yet you're barreling headlong into this deadly mistake. You're thinking someone ought to catch you. Scott Colborn with Exploring and Explain Phenomena. I hope you're doing great this morning. It's great to have you here. With me on the phone is my friend Lloyd Arbach. And Lloyd, good morning. How are you doing? Okay, Scott. Thanks. How are you? Thank you so much. We're enjoying the rain back here. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a lively day. We've got some thunderstorms and potentially more yeah. severe weather coming in this, this evening here. I printed off um, a rather impressive class outline and syllabus. You are doing a class coming up in June, Introduction to Parapsychology. That's right, yeah. Uh, this is the, for the Rhine Research Center's Education Center, and it's a really good overview of all things psychic, really. Uh, what we study in parapsychology and uh, a little bit of history, a little bit of everything, actually, for this course. Very impressive. I, I uh, printed out the syllabus here. Um, science versus the supernatural. What makes psi research a science? And so people will say stuff like, show me the evidence. If you had yeah. that open-minded skeptic that came to you and said, well, geez, Mr. Arbach, you're the author and parapsychologist. Show us the evidence. Would you say welcome to the Ryan Research Center? <laughs> I, I would start there. I, you know, the Rhine Center has been publishing the Journal of Parapsychology since its very beginning in the 1930s, and it's a peer-reviewed journal. It's one place that evidence has been published, that studies have been published. And uh, then there's the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research and the Journal of Scientific Exploration. There's a, a few other places that have published research and results in parapsychology. And unlike many other fields, our field, uh, pe people in my, our field, feel compelled to even publish studies that didn't turn out to show high, you know, high percentage of people or of really good psi results. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're dedicated to the scientific method when it comes to publishing research. And even if that means that a study doesn't pan out, that's still, still being published. But mm -hmm. there's the overwhelming study evidence is that the, that ESP and psychokinesis do exist. And if not, if it's not that, then science needs to get a kick in the butt to try to figure out what is going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, Amen. Week two, a little bit of history. 
Spiritualism, Empirical Science, and the Serious Investigation Research of Psychic Experience. That's one of the, the hard things about this, isn't it, that it's, for some of the aspects of parapsychology, it's hard dragging it into the lab. There are certain things that are tough to bring into the lab, but that, you know, that's not uncommon for other sciences as well. I mean, let's face it, astronomy, you can't bring things into the laboratory for that. And there are, there are aspects of traditional zoology, uh, observing animals in the wild, and there's even phenomena, physical phenomena, such as the weather, studying the weather. You can bring certain aspects to try to recreate them in the laboratory, but you're really still observing or working from the outside. Uh, week three, extrasensory perception, the phenomenology of ESP, spontaneous ESP experiences, uh, experimental research, conceptual issues, theoretical considerations, uh, just very, very impressive. Uh, week four, psycho... Well, we're trying to cover touch every base here. Yeah. And how many weeks is this class? It's an eight-week class, and people can take it either for fun, just plain old fun, um, or they can take it for a grade. We, we actually have a certificate that we give for people who take it for a grade and pass the class. Because there is like a midterm quiz, a short quiz, and a short final quiz. A lot of people just take it for fun. Uh, but then, again, a lot of people actually take it because they want to do a more academic version of it. And that would mean filling, doing the discussion questions every week and taking the quizzes, making sure they're getting all the reading done, all of that. Uh, it is designed for both levels and... Uh, if you take that class, then you take you can take other classes at the Ryan Center on all sorts of other topics, more in-depth into some of the single topics we cover in the intro class. And again, a lot of folks continue on more in the more academic track just because they want the final certificate in parapsychology, which is, uh, you know, just show some mastery of the, of the information, mm-hmm. of the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of people that just take them for fun. Which is great. I, I kind of and a lot of those students still participate in the discussion forums, which is also a lot of uh, fun. Get some really interesting questions and uh, experiences with people that way. Uh, week five: psychokinesis, special topics, and psychic fraud overview. Uh, week six: survival of bodily death and overview of concepts and the evidence. Uh, field research investigations how to take this knowledge and going out into the field. Do you know how many people that I would love to have take this class that call themselves Ghostbusters? <laughs> well, considering uh, one of the students, one of my students from the Ryan Center a couple of years ago, went on the web and was just as a, as a, as a project for, I think she was in a college class, tracked down that there were over 3,000 active websites of ghost hunting teams in the United States alone. And, and so most of them, unfortunately, don't have any background or understanding of parapsychology, don't even use the word, don't even understand how science works. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd say probably 90% of the ghost hunters out there just are people we don't want to take in this class. And uh, like a true academic, there's also uh, in week eight, which is the wrap-up, implications, applications, there's also uh, criticisms of parapsychology. 
You know, to actually know your field, you have to know what other people say and think about your field, including right. some of the people that um, may not be as open-minded. <clears throat> you know, I never, I never have a problem with people that are skeptically open-minded, because I think, Lloyd, right. that's what you are. You're skeptically open-minded. That's what I am. Yeah, I, I like to call myself a situa situational skeptic. Um, <laughs> that's I, good. I like it. Yeah, I mean, basically what it boils down to is I do believe in that, that Psy exists, this stuff exists, but every single experience or every single case that's reported to us may not be, and we have to look at each individual incident separately. Uh, you have to look at each piece of research separately, too, and determine whether or not it's well-controlled and whether what we think the outcome is is the actual outcome. So, I mean, that's the way science should work. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of people in science and religion on both sides, and they're amazingly similar in the way they react to this, to our research, um, that just will not even look at the evidence. Uh, a few years ago, Daryl Bem, who's a social psychologist at Cornell, uh, it was announced that he was publishing an article on his precognition research in a, the journal Personality Studies, which is a major psychology journal. And no one had read the article yet, but the hue and cry from scientists in the mainstream against this journal and against Daryl, without even having read the article, uh, read the paper, was amazing. And one very smart New York Times reporter and a few other reporters did the same thing asked some of the major voices, you know, some scientists, scientists who were well-known, who had said that this, it was a, you know, a crime, practically, that they were going to publish this, this uh, paper. They were asked, have you read the paper? And generally, the result, the, their responses were, why would I? This stuff can't exist. So they didn't even know if Daryl came up with no results or results in the opposite direction. They just assumed that he was promoting precognition, and they they would have none of it, and they wouldn't read it, and that's wow. about as unscientific as you can get. Uh, before we let you go, tell us a short story about one of the personal experiences that you've had over the years that causes you again to really reflect and think deeply about about parapsychology. Well, if I want, if I go back to my first job in parapsychology, I worked at the American Society for Psychical Research in New York. And while I wasn't working as a researcher, I did participate in some of the research uh, with Alex Tanis, who was a amazing psychic. Um, he did out of body work. Uh, we were actually studying his out of body experiences. Uh, but I also worked with Alex in a couple of uh, ghost cases and some other things, and I learned quite a bit from him and from Dr. Carlos Osis, who was the research director. And I uh, had not really had any psychic experiences. You know, Alex had out-of-body experiences I'd never had when I tried as a teenager to, you know, do the astral projection thing. You never could get anything to work. But Alex told me that uh, it was kind of a stick-with-me kid, and you'll have your experiences. So... Um, I did end up having a couple of out-of-body experiences, one in which, uh, actually two, in which the, the people that I visited in my OBE travel actually saw me and conversed with me. And in the second one, we agreed to write down, to take notes down. Um, and when I called her, 
just to, without asking, I didn't ask her, did you see me in my out-of-body form or did you see me? When I called her, the first thing she said out of, just out of her mouth was, did you take notes? And we compared notes and it was just pretty amazing that uh, we, we had the same experience from different angles, you might say. Um, and I also had, this experience was really interesting for me because the first time it happened with, with these folks, I was dreaming. I had a dream about it, and they told me that they had seen me. The second time, I was in a very in a situation in which I was incredibly bored, and it was almost like my mind was going to be something else to do, and I would have thought that it was just simply, you know, boredom and uh, just daydreaming, except that it felt very real, and this other person saw me and had a conversation with me. Wow. Wow. Lloyd, uh, if somebody from your bookshelf wanted to grab a book off the shelf, one of your own books, to say, okay, I'm interested, I'm going to read something, what would you recommend to them? What are your titles? Well, uh, ESP Hauntings and Poltergeist is available. That was my first book. Yay! In kind of an overview of parapsychology in general, and then a focus on ghosts and apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists. That's a good one to go for. But I think both of my recent books, recently republished, uh, one was a revision, the other is a republication, uh, Psychic Dreaming, and the other one is Mind Over Matter, are both really good books getting things. And I think if people have an interest in human performance, including sports, that would be the Mind Over Matter book. Mm-hmm. But if they're interested in dreams, they should go for Psychic Dreaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lloyd, how can people find out more about that class coming up, Education to Parapsychology? If they go to the Rhine Center's website, and you can either go to the main site, which is Rhine, R-H-I-N-E dot org. It's probably the easiest to remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhine is in J.B. Rhine. There is a link to education on the left-hand side of that website, which will take you right to the Education Center. Or if you want to go directly there, it's rhineedu.org. So R H I N E E D U.org. You can find out all about that. That class and other classes that are being offered mm-hmm. as well. Lloyd, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? Well, you know, I'm here in the California uh, wine country, more or less, so I'm going up to a winery today. And uh, then tomorrow, I'm either going to, depending on whether we have a meeting, we're planning a big paranormal conference for the Bay Area in 2020, uh, something mm. akin to a big science fiction convention. Mm-hmm. So I haven't heard uh, the last, we may be having a meeting this weekend or next weekend. Uh, and if I'm not meeting tomorrow, then I'm going to see Deadpool too. Lloyd, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, continued best wishes for you and your family. Thanks so much again for all the, you, the good work that you do. Thanks. Take care. Our friend Lloyd Arbach, that's L-O-Y-D. Last name is A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. Uh, Lloyd has taught classes at the collegiate level in parapsychology. Currently offers a class coming up again through the Rhine Research Center, rhine.org. The class is called Education and Parapsychology. Take a look at that syllabus on what's coming up for Lloyd's class. Wow. Stay with me. We've got a lot more great show. We've got Richard Sewell, 
in studio, and we're talking about Nebraska and Bigfoot research, including some local cases, some Nebraska research. I think you'll find this very, very interesting. I've done some uh, storytelling over the years, and when I come to the subject of Bigfoot, I always ask people that, you know, if you don't think that our offensive and defensive line at the University of Nebraska is performing adequately, maybe we should do a little bit more of that walk-on program and get some of these big, hairy guys that are literally 6 to 10 feet in height, maybe 500 pounds, three to four times stronger than a human being. Yeah, I think they could anchor down maybe left tackle or right tackle pretty well. How about that, huh? Stay tuned for more great conversation. Our special guest, Richard Soule, and we've got all things Bigfoot coming up. I'm Scott Colborn. This will be a long break, and we'll be back with Richard Soule. The Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from Eagle Printing and Sign at 14th and N in downtown Lincoln. In business for over 20 years, Eagle offers a variety of printing services for first-time customers to long-time professionals, plus creative and design services. More at 402-476-8156 and eagleprintingandsign.com. And... Pinewood Bowl Theater, presenting the Great Pinewood Bluegrass Festival on Sunday, May 20th at the Pinewood Bowl Theater in Lincoln's Pioneers Park. With horseshoes and hand grenades, mandolin orange, The Devil Makes Three, and Green Sky Bluegrass. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And the Nebraska Recycling Council, helping to protect the natural environment and extend the life of our landfill. Reminding Lincoln and Lancaster County that corrugated cardboard will not be accepted at the landfill beginning April 1st. For more on recycling services and area drop-off sites, nrcne.org or 402-436-2384. And... Jazz in June, presenting live jazz every Tuesday in June at 7 p.m. Held outdoors near 12th and R Streets on the UNL City campus, Jazz in June offers a family-friendly environment with VIP seating and artist meet and greets available. The Jazz in June market begins each week at 5 p.m. with area food vendors, crafts, and more. Information at jazzinjune.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child. Start something today at bigbrothersbigsisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. 
Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Sure, great to have you with us on an overcast, um, sometimes drizzly, rainy morning here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Again, keep your eyes on the weather. Uh, we've got expected severe weather coming in later today and tonight, so keep an eye peeled. With me in the studio is Richard Sewell. And Richard is the author of a book titled... Now, let's see, where is this? Forest Signs of the Sasquatch Nox Gigas. And Nox Gigas is a Latin for night giant. I heard Richard's presentation. He was one of the featured speakers in Hastings, Nebraska, at the second annual Nebraska Bigfoot Conference, and that was February 15th through the 17th of this year. And uh, my friend Ellen said, you know, you've got to talk to Rich. He's got uh, just a treasure load of information on, on Bigfoot. So we're pleased to welcome Richard Sewell to the broadcast. And Richard, I understand you live in Lincoln. Yes, I do. And uh, I'm guessing you're probably uh, late 30s, early 40s. Actually, 51. Well, congratulations. So thank you very much. <laughs> I vaguely remember that in my rearview mirror. Uh, thinking back to when you were a young boy, was there anything in particular that motivated you to do some of this work you're doing nowadays? That's, uh, yeah. Actually, when I was um, younger, you know, growing up in the 70s, I did a lot of camping, and that was just kind of what we did. And when I first moved to Nebraska. I'd lived in Colorado and Illinois and uh, uh, South Dakota, but I lived in the Kearney area when we first moved here, and I used to walk the Platte River. That's kind of what we used to just do, go out and walk the Platte. And, you know, there's experiences uh, being out near river and, and being out in the, the wilderness that I can now look back at and say that, you know, I had feeling as a kid that I wasn't the only one there, you know, that I was uh, not alone in those situations. Mm -hmm. And as I look back at that, uh, I realize uh, through the research I've done, I probably wasn't alone mm -hmm. in those situations. I started collecting in the early 70s. My grandmother sent me reports from South Dakota from the uh, uh, up in the northern part of South Dakota, they used to have Bigfoot sightings up there and it would occasionally be in the paper and my grandmother knew I was very interested. I can remember, you know, as long as I can remember as a kid, I was fascinated by it. And so um, I used to collect those and read stories about it and, and in the library, if there was anything there, you know, I would read on it. Um, so it wasn't really until later that I was able to to go on expeditions and, and tie all this together. Mm -hmm. But I definitely can look back at, mm -hmm. you know, going picking mushrooms up on the 
on the river in uh, the near Wisner and we're near um, uh, West Point. Uh, we would get out and go mushroom hunting this time of year, and and mm-hmm. then you know you would kind of like see maybe something move here, see something going on, mm-hmm. and think I'm I'm really not alone in this situation, but mm-hmm. you know never real concrete evidence. Of course, most of it at that time was you considered it in the Pacific Northwest, and so relating it to, to the, the Midwest was always kind of a little stretch. But uh, I know now um, they've been here for a long time, and uh, that, that really kind of something from my childhood is what really got me involved in this. I've always had an interest. This is Richard Soule, and uh, he's the author of the book Forest Signs of the Sasquatch. Knox, and that's N-O-X, Gigas, G-I-G-A-S, and Knox Gigas is uh, Latin for night giant. At the, uh, the conference in Hastings, Nebraska last February, I asked a number of the speakers uh, this question. Based upon your research and your educational background, the question in this circle of Bigfoot research that always comes up to find that main body of evidence, I'm using that as a probably a ill-intentioned pun, do you kill or not kill? I, I don't think you need to kill them. Matter of fact, I think that's a mistake to to do that, especially with the research that we are, you know, with with all the uh, progress in DNA and that sort of thing. Uh, we do believe they are a hominid of some sort that mm-hmm. that may be a relative, and so uh, you know, killing them in that way would not necessarily be a, a positive thing for people to get involved in. I think there's enough. Uh, evidence that we are gathering that there is going to be physical evidence that a body will be found eventually. Most likely, I do a lot of research on Native American reservations, Mm -hmm. and that's uh, a little unique situation. If we were to find a body there, then the, the, uh, like on the Omaha Res, Ahu, for my brothers on Omaha Res, uh, I do research there, and if we were to find a body there, that that would be able to stay there, and we'd be able to do research. If a body was found at any state or national park, most mm-hmm. likely it would be collected by the park system, and we would not be able to mm-hmm. do research with that mm-hmm. uh, for various reasons. I don't, not all of them, I don't know, but we do have a unique situation in. Um, so I think Native American reservations in this country are our best options for something like that to find a body. The other thing is uh, when you look at the international research in Russia, the Almasty, they don't have the same laws that we have and they do have physical uh, skulls and bones that they believe is of the Almasty, which is the Russian counterpart of Bigfoot. So there is enough evidence out there right now. It's just a matter of time for DNA Mm -hmm. uh, research, that kind of DNA mining to bring that to fruition. And some of it comes down to dollars and you know, a lot of it is just uh, being in the right place at the right time and finding a body. But I, I don't think I, I do not advocate people hunting them. I think that's a bad idea. Uh, they're an alpha, uh, apex predator. So anytime there's one there, there's normally more than one. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody that would try to shoot at one would put themselves in danger or anybody else in danger in that situation. So I'm a no kill uh, mm-hmm. person in that aspect. And I think there's uh, abundant evidence 
without having to kill them that mm-hmm. we can prove they exist. Yeah, uh, you know, if this boils down to kill or no kill, uh, this, geez, as soon as you get into the the field, you recognize that these are sentient creatures. Mm-hmm. These are thinking, feeling, caring uh, creatures making decisions that affect themselves now and also in the future uh, with established families or clan systems. And uh, so if you went out to try to prove the existence and took your 30-odd six and tried to kill one, uh, that could be very well murder. Yeah, I, I think it's just a, it's a bad precedent, and it's not going to solve this issue really any quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you kill it doesn't mean you're going to take that body with you. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, they the, most likely they would come, and, and there'd be others there, and you're not going to get that body. Yeah, that, that, that came up. I had lunch with some friends here a couple of days ago and uh, told them a little bit about our show coming up here. And, they, you know, there was a nice discussion around the lunch table. And uh, one of them said, well, if, if there are Bigfoot, then uh, how come we haven't found the bodies? Uh, and that's, I think, a legitimate question. Uh, my other friend spoke up and said, uh, how many times have you gone out and found the body of another creature and rattled off two or three other uh, uh, predator-type creatures? Why is it that we haven't found a, a body? I think... Uh one of the reasons I think Dr. Meldrum had said this years ago, like when you look at uh, chimpanzees or even uh, other great apes, uh, they're rarely, rarely found their, bo- their uh, body of theirs or even bones of theirs because they deteriorate very quickly in the wild. And uh, if Bigfoot does bury their own, which I believe they do, or they take them into a deep cave system, uh, we're, we probably aren't going to find them either. So, but uh, just the degradation of a body in the wild, uh, it happens very quickly and it is very rare. And they've had very few bones of chimpanzees that mm-hmm. they had found over the years. And that's a very common uh, you know, animal to see mm-hmm. and you're in, when you're in the jungle. So uh, not having a body is not an end all with that as far as, you know, we should have plenty of Bigfoot bones and have them. Mm-hmm. I think in the past they have actually found uh, bodies of Bigfoot. Uh, potentially uh, they've taken them and put them in Native American graves or they've get, uh, have had them removed to uh, the Smithsonian or somewhere where they're not being um, researched for the general public. But I certainly believe uh, there is there has been times they have been found and it's just has not gotten into mainstream science and hasn't had a lot of research done with it. There's actually uh, another case of in Russia that they had found a body in uh, the, near the Russian River in California years ago, and they took it back to Russia, and it's supposedly in, the, in, the, in a museum there and some of their, in the basement. Uh, so, you know, I think there's been cases where bodies have been found, um, but whether or not it's tricolated into mainstream science mm-hmm. and been able to study it is still you know, the case, but uh, it's not uncommon, and I don't think it's unreasonable to think that, that uh, it would be any different than a chimpanzee. We find very few of those. Why would we, why would this be any different? So. The interesting conversation. It, Richard, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Soul? Soul, yes. S-O-U-L-E, Richard yes, Soul. Yes, You know, I, uh, I'm a bit older <clears throat> than, than you are, but I grew up with Life and Look magazine, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary's Adventures on Everest, and the reports of the abominable snowmen. 
-hmm. and the tracks these guys were finding at altitudes where there shouldn't be a, a big footprint splayed out with a big toe like that, where everybody else has got on woolens and thermal gear and, and two or three socks and boots and things. Uh, I've got friends, uh, as you mentioned, honoring our Native American brothers and sisters who talk about uh, in, their, uh, in their tribal system, this has been common knowledge for hundreds of years that there is a, another race of beings that inhabit our planet. And they're called various names, aren't they? You mentioned on your website, I read through last night, there is one of, was it Swamp Booger? Yeah, the, the Wood Booger, I think. Wood yeah. Booger. Yeah, Wood Booger in the, in the South. Yep, that's a very common term there. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily translate. That was one of the reasons why I, I call my study the Knox Giga Study. And my website right, is com, And that is my repository for all my research. Uh, I have the book that I do have published that does have uh, tree and uh, stick structures uh, information, which is a way to, to research them. But yeah, the uh, Native American history has been very long uh, of mm -hmm. having names for them. The Sitanga, the Hinskabenu, um, of course, uh, Sasquatch. Uh, uh, is a Native American name. And so they had a long history of having uh, interactions with them. One of the theories that I have on my website is it's, it's I call it the European contagion theory, is that when Europeans came into this continent, uh, they, they literally had uh, brought diseases that were uh, genocidal to the Native Americans. And if we have a, uh, an upright walking hominid that is in close uh, um, DNA, to, to some of our uh, uh, Native Americans and to, to us, uh, they certainly could have been susceptible to those diseases. And mm -hmm. I think when you look at the epoch of when uh, they had all the um, Native American experiences and interaction with them, and then when Europeans came here, that there is that kind of timeline that you can point at and say, you know, maybe, maybe Bigfoot was uh, affected by this too. And so now we have a kind of a delineation of when when they were interacting with them and when Europeans came. So I think that's there's something to be said about that. I haven't been able to totally prove that, uh, but through just verbal, uh, through stories of Native Americans, when they would, they would be on the river and fishing, they'd be able to see salmon uh, and then see Bigfoot along the Salmon River. Mm -hmm. And then after smallpox, they didn't see the Bigfoot anymore. So mm -hmm. I think we've seen a rebound of that, though. I think we see a plentiful sightings, and I think uh, just as uh, you know, we're, um, Native Americans have not, population hasn't came back to what they were, I think we're definitely seeing the animal world a rebound from things, and, and Bigfoot certainly, though they're the stratification of them is all over the country and all over the world. Uh, they're kind of uh, relegated to wildlife areas mm -hmm. and these riparian forests along rivers. So, um. And we're, we're talking to you folks from Lincoln, Nebraska, which is sort of in the middle of the continental United States. And as Rich said earlier, we think about Bigfoot as being Pacific Northwest, maybe California. Folks, we're going to be talking about Bigfoot sightings in and around Lincoln and also in Nebraska. And we'll talk about reasons why here. Our special guest is Richard Soule, and he's the author of Forest Signs of the Sasquatch Knox Gigas. Now I'm looking at Richard's opening page for his website. If you want to go there, uh, in your favorite browser, type in Knox, that's N-O-X, and then Gigas, G-I-G-A-S, and it'll pop right up. Richard, 
I'm looking at this picture. What is this that I'm looking at? That picture was actually taken on the Omaha Reservation. That was on December 13th of 2014, 12, 13, 14. So it has a date that's always in my head. Uh, that is a stick structure. And there's actually multiple structures there. There's one behind it that's an arch and one farther back that's kind of a lean-to. But this, this stick structure, if you look at it, there is, there, it's leaned against that, uh, I guess, that sapling tree there. And then there's another uh, uh, stick or branch that's, that's put in front of it that holds these other pieces together and it's kind of woven and that's one of the aspects of one of a, a bigfoot structure is that they they weave these kind of things together they they put one on top of the other and over and under and they have supports that uh, many times these sticks you can't see it on that but they're they're stuck into the ground also and so this didn't just fall out of a tree and happen that way this is clearly there supported and uh, we don't know all the meanings of the various structures, but I have outlined quite a few of the different, the variations of them. Um, and this would be a smaller structure. And then I have other structures that I term superstructures, which are entire whole trees that are put uh, either in an X or arches or variations of, of that. And so uh, this was a nice uh, picture because there's actually the, that first series of structures, there's a double arch behind it way back and then even farther back. There was a whole series of structures in this area. And that's very common if you're gonna look for Bigfoot structures. There's never just one. Uh, there's always multiple structures in an area. And so you'll, you'll find variations and different types of structures as you walk through. Uh, so that's, it's a good indication of how to, to locate Bigfoot. I actually do, um, when I do my research and we do a night, uh, we would do like a night op or a night overnight uh, in, a situ in an area, I would camp next to one of these. I would locate uh, a, a structure and then set up camp there. And that is a real uh, increase of having activity mm -hmm. uh, when you've done that. I've had my foot grabbed, uh, gotten very close to the... People like Richard and other Bigfoot and Sasquatch researchers is to um, establish a pattern so that Bigfoot recognizes you. Go in the area, spend time there, be there. Uh, don't just drive in sit at a picnic table, eat, and then drive away and expect that you're going to see one, but actually habituate the Bigfoot. Make yourselves known. Let them see you and interact with you. And it's at least his point of view is that when you do that, then you have this rise of interactions and with them because they recognize um, who you are. Mm -hmm. And they recognize that, oh, this is a guy. He's been here before. And he didn't display anything aggressive towards us. Maybe we can come a little bit closer. Yeah. Let's, we're kind of curious. Let's go check this guy out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very good. You know, uh, typically they will choose who they interact with. Mm -hmm. And so if you make yourself open to them and even talking, if you're uh, in the woods there and you're looking at a structure like that, you can talk out loud. Mm -hmm. There's a... Uh, great chance if if you're seeing one of these structures they're not very far from you they typically stay about 70 to 100 yards away and they're very stealthy they might be laying down or up in a tree or just behind the tree but they're very stealthy mm -hmm. but if you're out there and you're talking to them they're hearing you mm -hmm. and they can 
tell if they if it's somebody like you they want to interact with mm-hmm. and so i would not i would not uh, think that i would not allow people really to want to take these structures and touch them and want to take them apart or take a souvenir i discourage that i mean they are very interesting very unique uh, and when you find them be very respectful i'm always excited uh, when i find a structure i mean it, it never uh, it always uh, gets me excited and yeah, do you have other pictures too of the structures yes i okay. do um, so there's a, an elaborate uh, index over here that you'll see all sorts of, of options to click off from this main page here. Uh, Richard, the, the, we're going to take a break here in about two minutes, and so I know that this is a question that maybe deserves more than two minutes, but another question that I ask people in Hastings, because of my years, not as a serious researcher, but as a person who's been fairly well read in the literature since the 1970s there's the controversy about is bigfoot always a physical creature or is bigfoot also at times a psychical creature uh, we've gotten into that, and certainly with my uh, Native American brothers, they talk about the spiritual side of Bigfoot. Uh, I have focused primarily my research on the scientific evidence, and I try to keep it to that. Yes. Um, for me, um, I do keep an open mind, but I do believe some of the things that, that are de- that people believe are supernatural probably have a natural uh, explanation. So I try to uh, focus on the natural explanations and look at other uh, things in nature that would reflect that, that we can compare that to and, and try to see what, uh, you know, what, what would correlate to how a, a Bigfoot would have that same sort of thing. So I, I, I really try to stay clear of the whole supernatural mm-hmm. uh, side of it, although I keep an open mind to that. But I, if I find some area of my research that, for instance, some people believe that their eyes glow or that their eyes are um, um, uh, reflecting light. And I've seen this many times in, in, the, in the woods, and I've seen leaves illuminated over their, uh, uh, their the leaves in the tree. So some sort of reflect, highly reflective eye, luminescence. Uh, illumination. So uh, there is things in nature that mm-hmm. we can compare that to. Bioluminescence, there's... Uh, tape diem that is in the eyes of a lot of nocturnal or uh, crepuscular animals, and that allows light to be increased. So I I really try to focus on that sort of thing and try to really see, well, how would that relate to Bigfoot then? And, you know, is that really something that that, that is possible? So, yeah, there's that spiritual side of it, but I, I, I try to stay focused on the scientific side. This is Richard Sowell. He is a Lincoln resident with research in Nebraska, all over the Midwest here, a member of a number of organizations, and we're talking about Nebraskan Bigfoot research. Richard Soule is the author of Forest Signs of the Sasquatch Knox Gigas. And again, if you type into your favorite search engine, Knox, N-O-X, and Gigas, G-I-G-A-S, it should pop right up. We've got more great conversations. Stay right there. Pour yourself some more coffee. We'll be right back. I'm Scott Colborn, Richard Soul, and you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. What it needs. In the stoic silence of the mountains. 
Hey, the voice of the blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And... Pinewood Bowl Theater, presenting the Great Pinewood Bluegrass Festival on Sunday, May 20th at the Pinewood Bowl Theater in Lincoln's Pioneers Park. With horseshoes and hand grenades, mandolin orange, the devil makes three, and green sky bluegrass. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. May 31st is Give to Lincoln Day, a citywide day of charitable giving to support the nonprofits that make Lincoln a great place to live. This is KZUM Cares, a special segment this month highlighting some of those organizations. Serving as a hub for the LGBTQ population in Lincoln, Outlink is an organization that empowers and celebrates the LGBTQ community through a variety of inclusive and collaborative programs. These programs include walk-in HIV testing, volleyball, pride meetings, reading groups, positive living, outspeaking, rainbow clinic, and more with the hopes of bringing this community closer together in an open and constructive environment. To find out more about the organization, the location of these events, and local LGBTQ resources, visit outlink.org. This has been KZUM Cares, a special presentation that highlights a new local nonprofit every day in May to celebrate Give to Lincoln Day, the citywide day of charitable giving to benefit the many organizations that make Lincoln a great place to live, is Thursday, May 31st. For more on Give to Lincoln Day, visit kzum.org. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Hey, I want to ask you guys and gals for a favor. And this goes out to folks that have been listening for weeks or months, maybe folks also that have been listening for years. It's so important next week to help us out with our Give to Lincoln fundraiser that we're taking part in for KZUM Radio, nonprofit, non-commercial radio. You guys and gals out there represent over 60% of our budget. And we're going to need you to step to the plate next week 
and to make donations. We're going to try to raise $1,500 during the program next week. Should be a lot of fun. Gives you a chance to put your money where your ears have been uh, weeks, months, or years on KZM Radio and on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. So it's very, very important that we all join together next Saturday and do this. I'd love to come back the following week with a glowing report and with your permission to give names, uh, first names on the air and things. Uh, We do this about three times a year. And so the big fundraiser, the Give to Lincoln KZM Radio fundraiser is next Saturday. And please tune in and, and be a part of that. Our guest this week is Richard Sewell. He's the author of Four Signs of the Sasquatch Nox Gigas. And Nox Gigas is Latin for night giant. Uh, Richard, what about the reports of a experienced tracker tracking a set of Bigfoot footprints in strata that clearly give the footprint? The footprint goes into a clearing and then suddenly stops. And where did the creature go? Yeah, that that we've had reports like that, and that is common for their tracks to just kind of lead somewhere and disappear. Uh, from what from what I've gleaned from a lot of this, and I have had some experiences uh, that are um, you would consider paranormal, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, with Bigfoot and. Uh, in that way, we've had electronic devices lose uh, all of its power. We've, we would be right there trying to record them, and all of a sudden, all of your power, you literally just put a battery in your uh, recorder, and it's now dead. So, uh, And that is in the presence where we have some Bigfoot activity. Um, I have read and understood that they may eat uh, and be attracted to quartz crystals, which have some ability to, they may be able to metabolize things that we cannot. And quartz has some qualities that could uh, potentially magnify some of the things that they're able to do. We know, uh, I have a theory on my website about Bigfoot bioelectric static, and there is uh, uh, the ability that they may have some ancient vestige to be able to generate static electricity. There's been reports of them shutting vehicles off mm-hmm. and, and their hair would come up and the vehicle would shut off. So can they um, physically disappear in some way or, or get into uh, some sort of vortex and disappear or something like that? You know, there are things uh, on our planet that we simply do not understand. Uh, and so I suppose that within my own mind, that's a possibility. I have never seen that myself, uh, but I've tried to keep an open mind to that sort of thing. I try to focus on the, the physical uh, things, but I do know that there are things that we just simply, just because we don't understand them doesn't mean that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, I keep an open mind to it. I have one experience about this kind of bioelectric static that I've seen, and I actually recorded it. We had uh, Dr. Meldrum was on the Omaha reservation. If anybody's familiar with Bigfoot, they would know uh, from Idaho uh uh, Dr. Meldrum is world-renowned uh, about the foot uh, for, uh, morphology of Bigfoot, and he's done all this research. He was here last uh, in January 2017, and he had a crew with him, uh, and he was with the official Bigfoot search team, and he had a, a crew with him, and they were filming a documentary. While, while they were filming me, I had a FLIR uh, camera, which is a thermal camera, and I was looking at uh, 
Barry, who was uh, on the Omaha Res, he's with Res Watching, and Dr. Meldrum was there, and they were, there was four people standing there, and they were looking in the woods. Well, off to the side, we had some tree peeker images on this thermal image, and then all of a sudden, a flash of light comes towards, and I have a cameraman with a 4K camera looking at me, and I'm looking over him with my FLIR, and this light flash happens, and then I kind of start panning away. We had a guy go home with a bad headache shortly after that. I didn't put all that together. You know, at the time it was, well, it was about 20 below zero. It was freezing on the mm -hmm. Missouri River at that time. So I was just trying to maintain my own warmth. But uh, later looking at that and breaking that down, there, there was certainly some anomalies to that mm -hmm. uh, energy blast that came out of that area where mm -hmm. these two heads were picking out. Uh, so I can't explain that, but I did catch something that uh, was a phenomenon that did not occur. We didn't take a picture, and somehow there was a minuscule lapse of time at that time, too. So very strange uh, thing that I documented. It's on my website. Cliff Berrickman at the Hastings Conference talked a lot about um, the uh, uh, footprint of Bigfoot, mm -hmm. talked about some of the prints that were found uh, uh, at the site of the Robert uh, Patterson-Gimlin film. Yes. Uh, uh, so I want to talk about that difference in foot morphology, but I just, I got to hear the story. You mentioned earlier that you've had your ankle touched. Yes. Okay. Uh, tell us the story. Well, uh, this was last uh, August of 2017. We were on the Omaha Res for their uh, expedition that they were doing. What general area, when you say Omaha Reservation, what general area is that for people that don't know? Well, this is Macy, Nebraska. So mm. this is between Sioux City, Nebraska, and Omaha, almost dead center in between uh, the Sioux City and Omaha, Nebraska, along the Missouri River. You're on the river, It's a yep. uh, riparian forest, which has deciduous hardwood trees. Uh, there are natural springs there and mm -hmm. karst systems, which I believe is an indicator if you have these karst systems, which have wet and dry caves and a natural spring because they need fresh water mm -hmm. to digest meat. And it's just a very integral part of, that, of their ecosystem that, that I found them in all over the country. Mm -hmm. So Macy, Nebraska is the Omaha Res, and that is where uh, we've done conducted a lot of research. That's where I choose to go and do a lot of research, mainly because uh, we, we have control over that environment. We're a state park and other parks we do not, mm -hmm. but uh, we have approval to be there and to do this sort of research, and we are given the blessing of the elders in that community. Uh, Barry and Dee uh, uh, Webster of the Omaha Res uh, have a res watching. I am a member of that. Mm -hmm. So we had found a location where there were some stick structures, one, uh, primarily a large arch. And that night, uh, the night before we had been there, we had saw some eye glow. We had seen eyes uh, that were peeking around trees and coming towards us. And so we thought this would be a good location to do our overnight and to camp there, to do a, a remote camp. This was on a bluff uh, over off of the Missouri River, and it was a very heavily wooded area. Uh, we had these six structures, so we put up our tent. There was three of us, uh, three there was five of us, three ladies. Uh, Tammy was one of them mm -hmm. uh, that you had met before. Mm -hmm. uh, and myself and uh, Barry came up later and uh, Paul. And we had uh, put our tents next to these structures. And we had been up there. We left. We put them up during the day and then came back mm -hmm. later that night. Just, just about three in the morning, we came back and got in our tents. Well, 
after uh, we'd had a lot of activity just kind of around there, it was, there was an energy there. There had been a storm. Lincoln had a really bad storm uh, here in Lincoln, but up there it was just on the fringe of it. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get that lightning flashes and the wind, trees blowing around. Had an eerie feeling, I must mm-hmm. say. Uh, but I was in my tent, and uh, I first thing I had, I always have a recording equipment hanging there. I had a, it has a little red light on it, so I always taped that. And my recording equipment is hanging. It starts, uh, it starts moving back and forth, and my tent, uh, part of my tent, starts coming in towards me, and that caught my attention right away. I uh, got kind of concerned. I, I suspected this was the big younger Bigfoot coming in and checking us out, checking me out. I was in my tent by myself, and we were kind of spread out a little bit. Um, I took my hat, not knowing quite what to do, and slapped at it, <laughs> and at the at the at the movement, and it went back. Later, as I was laying there, I um, felt my foot get grabbed, and then uh, when Barry came up and joined me later, and actually it grabbed my knee also. And this is very common. Apes do this. They want to. Um, when they're trying to understand something, they like to hold on to it and feel it Tactile. really. And so, for them to touch me, I, I really kind of felt blessed by that to have been touched by a, a Bigfoot, even through the tent. But uh, also, they were peeking at, under my rain fly, <laughs> peeking in at me. And I believe they were the juvenile Bigfoot, the young ones in that area. And when when the alpha male came in about 4 a.m., he did wood knocks that just sounded like shotgun blasts on all four sides of us. And we had to get out of our tents and shine flashlights. We were pretty afraid at that time because we thought we'd overstepped our our Mm -hmm. welcome here. But I do believe he was trying to uh, tell the little ones, uh, you guys need to get back, you shouldn't be doing this. And also letting us know that, you know, dad is home and this, you guys probably shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was, it was some way it was very cool, but it was, it was, you know, a frightening experience too. Dealing with being out in the woods in the dark and uh, uh, knowing that there are Bigfoot around you um, is a humbling experience. Mm-hmm. And it's also you deal with fear. You have to um, deal with that that ability to to handle fear and and stay in the moment. And yeah, if it's it's different being in a heavily wooded area by a nearby water source during the day, and that location changes then at night it definitely it's and very dark if, and <laughs> if bigfoot is a predator at night that's going to be when bigfoot may be up and around uh you mentioned uh, a car system is that a, a term for a cave system uh car systems are typically like the in Lincoln, which is a good example of one here, is Robber's Cave. And sure. so what you have there is you got Dakota sandstone, and you have uh, typically uh, what you would have is a, a natural spring would make a wet or dry cave, mm-hmm. or you would have water that flood water comes in and kind of creates, starts creating a cave system. Uh, uh, so a car system is that kind of Dakota sandstone or porous uh, uh, sandstone porous stone, and when you have the spring water, then they create wet and dry caves. So that's typically a karst uh, system. There's and you associate uh, caves then with a area that has Bigfoot activity. I do, I do, and that's <laughs> one of my theories. And I had been all over, like I've been in Iowa and the Solarian Escarpments, I've been in the mountain regions of the Jimenez Mountains of New Mexico and the Pine, 
uh, Pike National Forest in Colorado, and all the areas in Montana also, the areas I've been to, I associated uh, uh, high activity with these spring, natural springs, and where the Bigfoot were. And they just happened to have uh, cave systems, wet and dry caves. Mm -hmm. And I do believe they use those cave systems. Uh, it's, it would be helpful if you're a big, uh, you know, if you're 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds and it's 100 degrees here in Nebraska, where's a good place to go? A cave is 50, uh, 55 degrees all year round. Very comfortable. So, uh, you'd be able to stay in there. And like here in, uh, in, in the Lincoln area, we have Salt Creek that winds through um, the southwest part of Lincoln. And that's, that's kind of an extension. We know that Robbers Cave used to stretch all the way out towards the regional center and then even towards the state penitentiary. There was miles of these caves. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to think there's, there isn't more caves like mm -hmm. that that we're not aware of and that they could be using those. So... This is Richard Sewell. He's the author of Four Signs of the Sasquatch Knox Gigas. His website, easy to find if you just type in Knox, that's N-O-X, Gigas, G-I-G-A-S. Uh, you'll find his website very, very quickly. Uh, Richard Sewell is our, our guest this morning. And now I want to talk about a Lincoln report that you and I just recently heard about. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that Bigfoot is an apex predator. That means that there's pretty much nobody that messes with Bigfoot because he's at the top, he or she is at the top of that, that pyramid, that food chain, if you will. Uh, so you and I were talking off mic, it stands to reason that if Bigfoot is a carnivore, one of the food sources would be, at least in our area, deer. Other areas, it might be elk, uh, it might be uh, uh, similar uh, uh, animals. Mm -hmm. So if there are deer around and there is other habitat, then that provides a basis then for Bigfoot. And this all figures into this recent sighting. Okay, so let's, we can use first names, uh, but let's set this up. Tell us what, what you know about this. Well, uh, yeah, uh, sighting was reported uh, um, north of Lincoln, and, uh, and it was during the wintertime. There was a, uh, a, a gentleman was driving his vehicle on his way home, and he had encountered some deer crossing the road. I think it was February of this year. Uh, as uh, so that caught his attention right away, and it, it was, was snowing. Time. What's that? Was it snowing or it was, was kind of snowing? Yep, mm -hmm. yep. There was some snow, and so uh, he he it, which kind of partially blocked some of his view, but he could tell these deer darted out, and then all of a sudden, a very large figure darted out after these deer, and he described it as almost kind of a floating uh, style, but it was very big. He actually turned the wheel of his car and almost went in a ditch, so it really uh, surprised him to the extent that, that he was shocked. Uh, he reported this to his wife, and his wife reported it uh, to us, So, uh, uh, that, which is common kind of thing how people do that. But the uh, interesting thing is that is very common that they would be ch you know, chasing a deer. They would be actually, obviously after their food source. And the fact that it moved very fluently, that's very common. The step of Bigfoot, which is an inline step, uh, they actually don't teeter back and forth like you or I 
would teeter when we walk. They uh, always have one foot on the ground and their ability to just kind of lean into that and move forward with that, that step, uh, inline step, is uh, very uh, integral to the identification of them too. They don't bob up and down like we normally do. So I found that very credible. That's a, a area that uh, Salt Creek is a, a high uh, um, uh, area of sightings that we've had here in the Lincoln area. And uh, the, the city dump is actually not too far from there and it was near Waverly Road there. Uh, and uh, so there was a, that, that in itself, I found very credible. And the fact that it was chasing deer, again, that's a very common thing. And road crossings are common sighting places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I truly believe we, uh, and I would encourage people, if, if you have sightings here in the Lincoln area or wherever you're listening to this, you can get to my website and you have questions or want to tell me your story. I, I encourage people to do that. Oh, I'd love to have some more stories come to you, Rich. Yeah. Yeah, this is, we again, we talked off mic that there uh, is not so much a prohibition against talking about this, but there's under-reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, people experience something like this, they really can't go to the office the next day and at the coffee pot say, hey, I just saw this big hairy guy last night. <laughs> That's you right. know, So uh, Rich has got a really valuable uh, thing that he's offering for people to have had this experience. Ladies and gentlemen, just imagine this guy, he's not out looking for Bigfoot, he's driving his car. It may be snowing, he sees a bunch of deer cross the road, and then suddenly they veer away from a stand of trees. They bolt from that like, uh-oh, and then out of the stand of trees comes this, this blur, the shape chasing Bigfoot. Whoa. And we're talking about Lincoln, Nebraska, folks. So if you've got... Uh, if you've got habitat, a place for Bigfoot to, to stay, live, to bed down, a water source, if you have plentiful food, AKA in this case deer, uh, that satisfies a lot of the requirements. Um, I'm trying to think of the, of the woman who talked uh, in Hastings about why are there reports from Nebraska? Well, you've got to have this and this and this for Bigfoot to exist, and Nebraska satisfies that in a lot of areas here. Yeah, um, we really do, and uh, Bigfoot is omnivorous, so, and they're an opportunist, um, opportunistic omnivorous. Just, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that was a great indication of them chasing deer, but uh, 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 them being in the, an area of a population area like Lincoln, if coming in and out of the, the, these, these river areas like Salt Creek and uh, these riparian forests are certainly their stronghold. They move in and out of there. They can do that, especially at night. They're on the move, but they're not, uh, um, you know, opposed to not getting on eating out of your dog dish or taking going through your dumpster or going through dumpsters where there would be food. They certainly um, do that. They take advantage of those easy calories when they can. <laughs> and we've had uh, people um, actually say that they've seen that sort of thing happening: mm-hmm. Bigfoot being in a dumpster and that sort of thing. So uh, they can eat a variety of things that we cannot. And they also, um, like for instance, insects, where we could we could if we chose to, but uh, like uh, any type of the fish and that sort of thing they can eat, mm-hmm. uh, uh, crayfish, all of that sort of things. We had uh, done a, we found some scat and had it tested in Iowa and it turned out that it had 
insect exoskeleton. It had crayfish. It had rodent fur. It had mm. all it had just a variety. It had like moss, a variety of things in it, mm-hmm. and they couldn't identify what animal it was from. But mm-hmm. it was off of a ledge on a high cliff, and we, we believe it was Bigfoot scat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are omnivorous. They can eat things that we we typically couldn't. And when they are in the woods, it's not uncommon for everything to just go dead silent. Mm-hmm. As that apex predator, everything <laughs> knows when they're there and are in fear of them. Yeah, Richard mentioned um, Macy, Nebraska, the Omaha Reservation earlier. And again, that perked my ears up because my friend Joan uh, was a teacher up there many years ago, and uh, she not only had Black Panther sightings on a outlying road outside of Macy, uh, there were several times that she went down to the river uh, just to spend time by the water, and as she's going down to the river, she suddenly experiences this really overpowering odor. And instantly, that was so forward and so shocking that she her senses went on full alert something is around so uh bigfoot that's one of the the things we might pick up on if they're in the area and the wind's carrying i uh, you know i um from one of the understanding i have of that you're not always going to get us uh, that overpowering smell but when they are there when you catch them off guard mm-hmm. they re- it seems like they release it like it's like it's uh they're uh, sort of a fear thing that they they're caught off guard they get nervous mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they release this 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 odor uh, that is something that uh, people do encounter I've encountered it many times myself it's generally I believe we kind of catch them off guard but I've had them move through the woods and haven't smelled anything too mm-hmm. so it's it's is an indicator of them but it's not always the indicator of them and but it's a great example of uh, somebody go, being in a place where they normally wouldn't be mm-hmm. and probably catching one off guard and it it got nervous and and uh let off this kind of uh this this odor and it is i've smelt it it's overpowering uh when you are in the woods with them uh you will have a feeling of fear uh without question it just almost comes over you that you cannot you want to leave that area you get this feeling of like i shouldn't be i think you i think it's a basic thing that you experience that you say to yourself um there's somebody else here that's bigger and stronger than I am. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're on their turf. Yes. Yep. They give that, uh, it's like an energy. If you've ever been around somebody that was very mad about something, you can kind of feel it. So yep. Uh, yep. as big as they are, uh, and they're not happy you're there, I, I do believe you feel some mm-hmm. sort of that energy, whether it is infrasound or whatever. There's other scientific things that other animals do. But they're certainly uh, capable of projecting that, uh, that that you shouldn't be here. Well, I don't want you mm-hmm. here. And you have to kind of fight through that. I've, I've done that more than once where I just kind of kept plugging along and uh, wound up having some unique things. Mm-hmm. Had uh, st- a little rocks thrown at me and tree branches and that sort of thing and and that if they wanted to hurt me they could without question uh they could have hurt me so i've been very fortunate i've never been injured or hurt uh and i i think that speaks for them also that there isn't if they really chose to hurt people we would have a lot high more instances of those things happening and we simply don't have that tell us uh, before we go to the break here tell us a little bit about um the Patterson-Gimlin film, 1967, is that, um, is that the linchpin of, of Bigfoot 
research, uh, if we remove that totally from the table, would other evidence suffice? Well, to this, to, to this date, it's still the best footage that was ever captured of Bigfoot. And there are some really interesting factors because of that. We, I got to meet Bob Gimlin. We met Bob Gimlin at uh, the conference. Wasn't that so cool it was an honor. to shake his hand and yes. understand? It was like, wow. you know, me, you know you're, if you were into sports, you're a sports idol, you know. So uh, just an amazing experience. But hearing his story, I mean, they were out for 30 days on horses. Yep. So imagine that. Who do, who does that anymore? Mm-hmm. Nobody that I'm aware of. So you're going to smell like the woods. You're going to be a part of the woods. The other thing is being on horseback. Uh, Bigfoot in that area probably uh, would associate uh, a f- an animal with moving on four legs as an elk or deer or something else, and they're not going to be afraid of that approaching them. So I think they caught Patty off guard for mm-hmm. one thing. Plus the other factor that was unique to that, they had that camera was uh, similar to a gun and how he was able to hold it and shoot it. Uh, these were experienced outdoorsmen who were, could get off their horse and fire off a shot faster mm-hmm. than most people could take a picture with a camera by, without a question. So those factors involved, they, they, they snuck up, they were out in the, these woods for a very long time, had very little smell of, 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 they didn't take baths or anything like that. So they were able to stealth themselves in that situation that most people could never do. Even today, it would take you a long time to do that. And the footage that they got is still the uh, barn and it is the best footage of Bigfoot. It has been through the gamut of, of criticism and it is an original piece of work. It's not faked. The type of in the step, that inline step, the foot morphology, all of the, the just the physics of this uh, huge uh, uh, Bigfoot uh, female with pendulous breasts. I mean, if you're gonna fake something, why would you do all that? Right. So there's just so many factors to this that gives it credibility. and. And to date, there's no better picture, better footage. So uh, it's it, it was a thrill to meet Bob Gimlin it and was. to hear his story. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're lucky to have that. You know? And if you ever have a chance, folks, to hear the rest of that story about Bob Gimlin, you really owe it to yourself because nobody knows about what happened later on that night. These guys came close to losing their lives. Mm-hmm. They came uh, incredible storm that they got through. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest this morning is Richard Soule, that's S-O-U-L-E. His website is easy to find, Knox Gigas, that's N-O-X, and then G-I-G-A-S. It'll pop right up on your favorite search engine. He's the author of Forest Signs of the Sasquatch, Knox Gigas, and that term Knox Gigas is Latin for night giant. We're going to take a bottom of the hour break. We'll be back with more stories from Lincoln and from Nebraska with our special guest, Richard Soul. I'm Scott Colborne. It's really great to have you with us. Stay tuned for more conversation. Hey, the Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from The Bay, The Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern, and The Zoo Bar. This is live music happening This Week in Lincoln. On Saturday, May 19th, Leftover Salmon plays the Great Pinewood Bluegrass Festival pre-party at The Bourbon Theater at 8. House Vacation and The Dancing Dead play Duffy's Tavern at 8. 
and Big Daddy Caleb and the Chargers are at the Zoo Bar at 6, followed at 9 by the In-Betweens with Eddie Mink. That's all this week in Lincoln. KZUM's Summer Concert Series at Stransky Park begins Thursday, May 24th at 7 p.m. with a live performance by Pangea with Pan Prep, two select steel drum groups from Lincoln Public Schools, plus kids' activities with the Art Reach Project and food by Pepe's. This year, we celebrate 15 years of free music in beautiful Stransky Park at 17th and Harrison with performances every Thursday through August 9th. Brought to you with support from Dietz Music, Rabble Mill, the Lincoln Arts Council, Augstum's Printing, and Bryan Health. Find out more at kzum.org. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time. Because there's a ticking clock, and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture, and just this side of the abstract, is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with our special guest, Richard Sewell. We're talking about Nebraskan Bigfoot research. Uh, I was approached by a woman who worked for um, uh, Lancaster County government a few years ago. And uh, prior to taking that position, she was a, a registered nurse. She was coming home uh, from seeing a client at night, about 10 o'clock at night. She was driving on North 27th and she's driving south. She's going to be approaching Superior. Uh, on her left would be part of the athletic fields for uh, the high school out there, North Star High School. Mm -hmm. So she's driving south on North 27th, 10 o'clock at night, and then she sees from the athletic field from her left running to a crossroad to her right this big, hairy creature. And he runs down the feeder route to a subdivision, a residential housing subdivision. Well, she travels up there almost seconds later. She stops her car right on North 27th, and she looks down that, that street, that feeder route, and can't see anybody. Wow. So I, I heard that story, and, and very, very impressive. What, yeah. Tell us some more stories from the area here. Well, uh, even with, even with that in that area, there was a, a lot of sightings. Um, Lincoln has a long history, and if I could just go back and kind of tell just kind of some early uh, early stories, one of the first stories that were published in the newspaper was by uh, an account of Charles Starkweather, who was uh, our infamous oh, uh, mass murderer uh, from here in Lincoln. He lived in the Belmont area, and there was an article written when he was in prison. They had interviewed him, and he had talked about seeing a, a, a in the morning coming to his home in Belmont there, 
which is off of that uh, kind of Salt Creek area, off into that uh, uh, where where even that Superior and all mm-hmm. that kind of is in that area there. Well, he lived in Belmont, and it would come up to his window in the morning. And he described it as a bear-like looking woman. He could only see it from the waist up, Mm -hmm. but it didn't have any neck. It had a kind of conical-shaped head, and it had breasts, and he had no reference to that. There was no uh, Bluff Creek, no – the term Bigfoot had not even been coined at Mm -hmm. that time. So he had no reference to it. He just thought it was death following him because when it left, it had a mournful cry – he said it was loud at first, and as it got farther away, it, would, it wouldn't be as loud, but it was a mournful cry. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that that conical, that sagittal crest, and that article that was written later about it, death had a sagittal crest, uh, but it was uh, uh, written essentially of his account, and that was in uh, interviewed by a newspaper. It was a newspaper article. And uh, so that was very early on uh, sighting before there was any reference to that. And we know now that that's a kind of a classic Bigfoot description, having a mournful cry, having uh, um, this kind of conical shaped uh, head that sits uh, on a, a body that with hardly any neck, hairy, with breasts. Uh, that describes physically a, a female Bigfoot. And even if you look at the Patty uh, video, it's very similar. So uh, thought that was an interesting one. From there on out, we have stories uh, that have reported. And, you know, the underreporting of it, I think, like we t- just briefly discussed, that's very significant. We have so many people who have had experiences that are not reporting them that uh, the ones that we do get and are able to talk about are, are great. But I bet, uh, there's so many stories people haven't told because I'm, fr- I'm sure they're afraid to tell them. So there's a huge underreporting of this activity. But one of the other ones we've had, uh, we had one on 27th and Fairfield Street, which isn't very far. Uh, there's Lincoln Electric System. Again, it's near the Salt Creek in the north part of Lincoln there. Uh, uh, back in the 80s, a guy was on his motorcycle. A Bigfoot ran across oh, yeah. the road, and he laid his motorcycle down. Again, that's that's kind of out in that same area as the last one you just talked about. Uh, so that uh, along Salt Creek is very common. Here's another interesting one. Uh, which was along Salt Creek near where we have the um, wastewater plant, and it was during the 80s. There was a gentleman working in the wastewater plant there along uh, Salt Creek, and he had saw something peeking in his window, and, and the window was eight feet off the ground. He was so frightened he barricaded himself into this uh, waste management building that he had other employees come to get him, and they looked out back, and there was footprints that went to Salt Creek, and they were large footprints. And so he had obviously had an encounter with something uh, that was very big that could peek into an eight-foot-high window. Wow. Another sighting, which was uh, not far from Wilderness Park, it was at Folsom Street and uh, South Street, which is, uh, this would have been back in the early 80s. A gentleman and his wife were turning off of Folsman Street onto the South Street area there. And on a big power box by the train tracks, there was a hairy individual standing there, very large, as big as the power box, so seven, eight feet tall. And the wife screamed. He turned and hit the gas. But these were all reported. Uh, some of this was reported to um, animal control, and it's it's gotten to me that way. Uh, we had other uh, people who saw two chimpanzees near the power uh, or the water waste plant, which is out near Abbott Sports Complex. Mm-hmm. 
that was back in the year 2010, I believe. They saw two upright chimpanzees walking in a cornfield, and that's a very kind of classic description of a young uh, Bigfoot, a uh, chimpanzee looking. And they reported that to animal control. So uh, that those are power. Those are uh, people working at the water waste plant. They're just leaving their mm-hmm. job. These are kind of uh, people that have no reason to make up a story or to, to talk about these sort mm-hmm. of things. And and I think that's why a lot of people don't want to share their story or are afraid to share their story because they're afraid of what other people are going to think or laugh at them. And but the reality is these are totally underreported, and so every one that I'm getting, I'm sure there's probably ten oh, that easily. I'm not getting. Uh, so yeah. very fascinating. Uh, again, if if there's a habitat uh, that would support Bigfoot, yes, Bigfoot could exist even here in the Lincoln and/or greater Nebraska area. We don't have to think about Bigfoot taking a a plane flight to come from the Pacific Northwest or a, a train trip. Uh, although I uh, uh, just talked to somebody who who mentioned uh, that, uh, do you suppose they could catch a ride by jumping on top of a train? There's been actual stories of that, uh, of people having sightings of them between train cars, kind of holding on uh, into the back area of uh, train cars. And there's people who sat at uh at train crossings that have seen something hairy in the back of this train holding on. Mm. That does not surprise me. Uh, they are uh, very uh, smart and, and, and not necessarily in the way that we think of intelligence, but in ways to, to probably get around and mm-hmm. to change, you know, manipulate their environment and do things. So uh, that doesn't surprise me at all that they would find a train. And typically trains go through areas that cross rivers or that would cross a, a forest area where they could jump off and, and be off that. Their ability, their physical ability to jump uh, and to climb and run is just off the charts. Uh, they uh, certainly, it would uh, be no problem for them to get in and off of a, a train. That would not be an issue for them at all. Yeah. And it would get them uh, kind of stealthily, especially at night, somewhere uh, for very long distances. It's It's been kind of uh, theorized about uh, a lifespan of a uh, Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. And do you think it may be a, a, a dental disease that takes some of them down? It's, it, it could most likely be that, you know, maybe by 40 years old, these sorts of things uh, would be, uh, you know, um, it would affect them and that, that it would probably end up uh, ending their life. If you can't eat and, mm-hmm. and you get other um, infections and that sort of thing, that that would probably do you in. Mm-hmm. So that's reasonable to suspect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we really don't um, know exactly what their lifespan would be, but that's, that's certainly reasonable to expect, especially from the observations when you see that they physically live uh, typically out in the open they're out in the open often that they ha- uh, their faces and that sort of things tend to be uh, when they're older very wrinkled like weathered and that sort of thing mm-hmm. so pretty hard life to live to be a, a sasquatch bigfoot mm-hmm. and to uh, have to you know fend for yourself and get your food that way and live out in the open uh, that being said, they they navigate like the sighting in the wintertime. They get around just fine in cold weather. They're active. Some people think they hibernate during those times. So they may t- they may take time to um, uh, to get away during storms. But they're 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 active year round. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it could be that through a storm, that's exactly when they would be out. Yeah, yeah. walking around and or hunting. 
Yeah, I think that's that is a good premise because that night that we were on on uh, on the res there camping that night, there was that storm activity, and it almost seemed to embolden them to to be out and about and do mm-hmm. stuff. I think one way is good because if you have rain, it's going to cover up your tracks, mm-hmm. so you're not going to leave a whole lot of tracks running around, or if you are, they're going to be flooded out. And even in the snow. Um, uh, if it's snowing, the snow, your tracks will be covered very shortly. So, yeah, it's a good way for them mm-hmm. to be stealth. They move through trees uh, very easily so they can get up in trees. I have also know that they will walk on branches and logs on the ground to hide their footprints. Mm-hmm. So they're very cognizant of keeping uh, their stealthness and hiding any uh, um, uh, particular footprint or anything like that. And they also... Uh, will walk more sometimes on their front pad, which will leave like a half a print, um, too, because they have that mid-tarsal break in their foot. And so... So, uh, uh, Richard Sewell has been our guest this morning. His book is Forest Signs of the Sasquatch Knox Gigas. And uh, let's finish our, our conversation here by talking about what people might find when they go out into the forest, into the wild. Maybe they're uh, in Wilderness Park. Maybe they're taking a walk on a farm, an outlying area. Maybe they're taking the, the uh, Mopac Trail and they're walking that. Um, chances are they may not see a physical Bigfoot, but they may see something that is an indicator. What might they see? Well, uh, in the book that you just talked about, Forest Signs of Sasquatch, uh, the Knox Gigas, I have uh, uh, many pictures in it, and I use pictures to reference this because uh, they create stick and tree structures. And these, uh, you know, to, to really get familiar with this, you have to understand na- uh, natural things that occur in nature. So getting a good understanding of what snow load is and that sort of thing, how that could shape things. But once you realize what the natural things are and got a good understanding of what can normally happen in nature, then you have an ability to start looking at things that are outside that normal um, uh, normalness that you would normally see out in the woods. And that would be these sticks and tree structures. Uh, an X, like that picture there you're showing, that's actually in Wilderness Park. Uh, and so that's a big X behind me there. That, yeah, I see uh, that. Look at that. Yeah. And that's stuck into the ground and it's held in place. So one of the things you would want to look at, you'd say, well, could this fall that way? Well, once you're looking at it and trying to kind of make a, 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 a view of it and see that you can see all around it, if you can see that it's stuck into the ground and it's actually pushed into the ground, it didn't necessarily fall that way to make that X. Something put it there, and then there's usually other supports. There's some ground supports. Uh, you can see on that there was something there, another branch that was holding it. There's a picture on my website that we looked at. But anyway, there's these additional supports there that are placed there to hold that in uh, in that position. And once one of those are put there, they can take them down, but they typically will be there for a while. Mm-hmm. There's some structures that are in, in the Lincoln area here that have been there for years. So looking for arches, another common one that you'll see is they'll pull a sapling into an arch. And um, I think one, uh, and then they'll hold it down with a branch or uh, another stone or something or stick it into the ground. They recently did some work on Old Cheney there on 20, uh, between Highway 77 and Old Cheney as it intersects mm-hmm. with Wilderness Park there. They widened that road. 
or they 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 they're going to put like a uh, sewer system or something there. But they mm-hmm. they got into Wilderness Park there quite a bit. Well, interesting enough, if you drive by there, there's a big after they had done all this. There's this big <laughs> sapling that is now pointing in an arch. You can't miss it. Mm-hmm. Well, they those construction workers didn't do that. They did a very good job clearing all that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the local Bigfoot put that in a position like, hey, well, wow. uh, we're here. This is our area. And, Richard, as we wind the show down here, uh, tell the listeners how they could reach you. Uh, If people have stories they want to relate to you, they have comments, how can they reach you? You can reach me on my website. That's the best way to do it. Uh, There is a contact information there for my email, uh, the study at gmail.com. So just email me, and I certainly would be happy to answer any questions or or talk to you about. um, We've had uh, groups go into the, the woods locally, but I try to, to not bother, uh, be too bothersome, and uh, so I'm mindful of that. But yeah, contact me if you have uh, any experiences that you want to share. Certainly, I could keep that private, and uh, if you have problems, I can help you. Uh, sometimes uh, we have habituation where they're coming to people's farms and that sort of thing. I think the local farmers are seeing here in Nebraska a lot more than they're willing to share coffee over in town. So if you're having a problem, certainly let me know, and I can give you ideas how to deal with that too. So, Richard, thanks so much for taking time to be here. This was really interesting, and I hope that you feel like the door is open for a return visit here too. Oh, thank you very much, Scott. I enjoyed it. Folks, um, we are not alone in so many ways. Wow, what a show. Uh, check his website out. It's Knox Gigas. That's N-O-X-G-I-G-A-S. I'm Scott Colborn. Hope to hear and see and, and, uh, and experience a lot of you next week during the big Give to Lincoln KZUM fundraiser. We'll be raising money next week for... KZUM and Exploring Unexplained Phenomena is a place to be. We are going to have a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening today. Stay curious. I'm Scott Colborn. Until next week, walk in beauty.